0: Good morning, powerful story, I love seeing that, you're going to see over the next uh, four weeks as we go through this new series, Nehemiah, um, a different testimony of a different life uh, that's been impacted, just being a part of spiritual family here at Vintage Church, so that's going to be really exciting, you'll see from different uh, folks in different uh, locations, so I'm looking forward to that. My name is Keegan, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I am the lead pastor here at our Belton location, welcome, so glad you could join us this morning, I could have kept worshiping, uh, sometimes I'm like, man, four songs. Let's do five. Let's do six. Let's just keep going. But we've got some other stuff to get to, and, and we'll definitely have some more worship nights uh, coming up after the new year. Um, so we'll be able to spend some more time doing that. Uh, but we're going to jump in. For those of you that um, are new, and this is your first week, you came on a great week because we're starting a new series. We're going to talk about a time to build. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about and look at the story of Nehemiah in the Bible and how they were uh, rebuilding the temple of God to establish worship again in Jerusalem. Um, But we're also going to talk about what we're doing here physically with our uh, expansion and our renovations that we're doing for our building across all of our locations. This place, you won't even hardly recognize. We got a little bit of ringing back. Uh, You won't hardly recognize this building when we get done with it. We're going to take the commons area and completely open things up that way so that people can not only get their coffee, but actually be able to sit down and enjoy it with somebody and and have a conversation. So it's going to be great, Um, and you can be a part of that. We'll talk about that probably more in week three. Um, We'll have some new plans and some visuals to be able to show you of what we're going to be doing. And so that's going to be exciting. Who has your Bible? Come on, wave it at me. Real Christians have what? Real Bibles. It's going to catch on, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to keep saying it every week until we get it. Um, normally we use the CSB this week, uh, most of our translation is New Living, so I just want to let you know if you're going to try and follow along in your actual Bible, you might be lost a little bit, so um, you can just pay attention, we'll have it for you on the screens. If you need a Bible, we don't mention this all the time, but we do have Bibles and we would love to give you one uh, for free, so if you need one, come up after service and we'll gladly give you one of those, we want you to have God's Word in your hand. So uh, let's talk about Nehemiah. Some of you may have never even been to this part of your Bible and read through it. And so I want to give you a little bit of context as we get going, um, I promise you there's so much in this to even unpack over the next five weeks, uh, but you're going to love this series, and you're going to love uh, seeing the similarities and the things that we can take from Nehemiah's life and apply to our own. So let me give you some context. Nehemiah loved God and was committed to his purpose, but he was exiled and living in Persia. Kind of, have you ever felt a little bit Exiled. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I got here. I wasn't planning to be here, but this is where God has me. Come on. Then you can relate to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. He wasn't a lowly. uh, This wasn't a lowly or menial job. It required a huge level of trust. And Nehemiah, therefore, was comfortable, provided for, and had a great job, and essentially enjoyed his life. It is okay to be in the place of having a great job, loving your life, and loving Jesus. Right? The Christian life doesn't always have to be about suffering and struggling and barely getting by and I'm just hanging in there for Jesus. Listen, if God brings you to a place where you are living life well, praise God. I can tell you and promise you if you get to that place that God is still going to have things for you to do. Right? So he's not called us to, to, to get all this prosperity so we can buy a yacht and then just check out for the rest of our lives. I promise you if you buy a yacht, God will find some place for you to take that yacht and take the gospel and go preach. So just think about that. You will have company on that yacht. God leads them to a divine partnership with a priest named Ezra and they changed their nation in the course of history. Do you believe that we could change our nation in the course of history? Do you really believe that? You and I as a part of God's family and his spiritual right here in Central Texas, we can start we can change things, we can bring change. If we are partnered with God and what he wants to do, he will use us to his glory to do that. And so I want to give you um, this. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's a normal guy. This is one of the best things about this story. Because so often when we read about biblical characters, it seems like they had these super, you know, specific, exceptional callings from God to do great things. And then all the rest of the people just kind of just followed them along. Nehemiah was not a priest right if he was here in present day it wouldn't be me right it'd be the person who's just faithful showing up who loves god but here's what i love about nehemiah he didn't wait for god to call him into something nehemiah just had a passion for god and had a passion for worship and a passion to see jerusalem and the temple rebuilt and so when he sees this opportunity to do something great for god he's like i'm i'm going to step in and do that like god use me i want to i want to do it that's all of us all of us we don't have to wait until you hear you know, some sound, some booming voice from heaven say, I want you to talk to somebody about me. Right? You don't have to wait for God. So I heard somebody say, well, I'd have to have a 10-foot Jesus on my lawn to tell me to. Listen, don't wait for that. You're never going to see a 10-foot Jesus on your lawn. Why? Because God has a sense of humor. He might show up as a two-foot Jesus on your lawn. (laughs) Be like, are you going to listen to me? You know. The point is, be ready. Be passionate about God. Don't wait to find out what is God calling me to do, so many people get hung up. And what is God? I'm waiting for whatever God. When God calls me to do something, then I'll do it. Listen, I'm going to tell you. You'll find your calling by just serving, by seeing where's Where is there a need? What can I do for God? And just start doing it. And eventually, God will put you right in the space and in the lane that He wants you to be in. I didn't. I didn't feel called to be a pastor at 13, 14 years old. I had a passion for worship. I had a passion for God. And I had a passion for doing whatever I could at the church. And so I just started doing everything, everything that I could do, that I, I just made time, and I did it. That became my life. People would say, how do you spend so much time at church? Like, don't you ever want to do anything fun? I'm like, this is fun for me. What are you talking about? This is my fun. Even all through high school, people would be like, why are you going up to the church on Friday night? And, and before you think I was some holier now saint, I wasn't. I still got spanked and did stuff I shouldn't do. But a lot of times, especially my, my last two years in, in high school, I would go up to... Um, our church with a buddy of mine, and we would just sit, and and they gave me keys. I mean, that was a lot of trust back then. They gave me keys, but we'd go in, and I would just sit at the piano and and just worship. I could play like three chords, but I would play them for like two hours, and we'd just open up the Psalms, and we would just sit and worship, and it's through that that God started just showing me things and teaching me things, and my love for him just grew, and the next thing you know, I'm doing this and doing that, and I can tell you, I never just stopped and waited. Well, I'll do something for God when he tells me what I need to do. If Nehemiah would have had that, approach in that posture this temple would have never got rebuilt that was a long tangent but I think it's gonna I'm gonna bring it back around so over the next several moments that we have today and over the course of uh, the, this series we're going to talk about actually a span of about 1600 years so I'm going to need you during in between Sundays to go in and read in Nehemiah yourself so that you can catch even more than what we're going to give you on Sundays but we're going to talk about the remnant today. Abraham to Mount Sinai. Let's start there, Genesis 22. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Tell your neighbor, blessing comes from obedience. Period. You can tell your kids this week, hold off on memorizing the verses, just remember this thought. Blessing comes from obedience. And likewise, curses come from what? See, I knew y'all were smart. So many people cannot figure this out. They're wondering why they don't have more blessings, or they wonder why they feel like they're living under curses. They're attached to your obedience or disobedience. That's why Jesus, God, gave us a choice. He started back in Deuteronomy. We're going to see that. But he said, today I set before you life and death. You make the choice. You can either follow God and follow his ways and be blessed, or you can rebel against God, do your own thing, and you will be cursed. It's just the way it is. So choose wisely. The reason, even today, that, that Satan hates Israel so much is because they're blessed of God and he can't stand it, right? God said, with Abraham and all your descendants after, God uh, is in covenant with his people and us by extension as well, Gentiles grafted in, right? If you're not Jewish born of Jewish blood, then you were a Gentile. I've said this before, so some people are like, well, I'm an American. Well, then you're a Gentile American. Right? But we had to be grafted into God's family. That's great news. We have been grafted in. And so now we're a part of that covenant. But make no mistake, this this the stuff you see when everyone comes against Israel and God's people, it started way back. Our story is not just in a vacuum, neither is Nehemiah's, as we're gonna see. It's all been part of the unfolding story of God and his people throughout scripture. Exodus twelve. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for, so they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Uh, another place in the Bible it says that, the make no mistake, the wealth of the wicked is being laid up for the righteous. Right? There's a lot of people that, that don't know God, that, are, that have all kinds of wealth, and, and when God's ready, guess what? He'll move that money. He'll move it to the advancement of his kingdom. Look at Moses in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly, To these commands that I'm giving you today, not just memorizing the list, but actually commit wholeheartedly to following them. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. This is why you hear a lot of the same stuff in church week after week. Why? We've got to be reminded. We forget all the times. Come on, some of us will forget this message by the time we hit the exit. Not you, you're all better than that. But right, we we need to be reminded. A great pastor one time said that people need to be reminded more often than instructed. It's not an influx of new information that we need the most, it's to be remembering and be reminded of what God has already said and told us to do. Then we get to the three kings of Israel in 1 Samuel 8. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. See, when God's leaders are weak, the people will cry out for a new king. God could have been, listen, God wanted to stay as their only governance, but they weren't happy about that and they wanted to be like everybody else and so they started crying out for their own king, and that's when they got Saul. But here's the problem. Saul was the king that people wanted, but David was the king that people needed. So they had to endure all that came with having Saul, their choice, until God's choice was, was set in place. Solomon then led an entire nation astray. Prosperity made him weak, and weakness made him forget. Come on, you remember, I don't know, uh, it's not coming to me right away, but uh, I don't know who it is in the Bible that said, Lord, help me, I don't want to have too much. That I forget about you, but I don't want to have too little that I would steal and, and, and profane you. Right? It's talking about being content. Lord, give me, give me what I need so that I will stay right in the place where I need to be, mindful of you. And then David we see is a type of Christ, and his lineage will bring Jesus through Joseph. But you'll see this pattern all throughout history where they go from they knew God to they knew about God to they knew not God. I remember uh, talking with some, some folks who are older than me, talking about what it was like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, right, where there was this sense of, like, people went to church. You know, a lot of people, in, in the time that I grew up, when I was in my teenage years, you didn't just go once a week. You might go Sunday morning, Sunday night, then you'd have a Wednesday midweek. I mean, it was more a part of your life, being with your spiritual family, being in church. It was more the cultural norm in the way of society, Nowadays, you, I, I literally meet people, I can't take any of these classic Bible stories for granted that people walk in knowing about it. You've got people growing up now who've never uh, spent a day in church. Their parents never raised them to know anything about the Bible. And so we've got we to understand the times and the seasons that we're living in. We have a whole generation of people who know not God, and it's because the parents failed to pass that on to the next generation. Come on, we can turn it around, right? Right? If you've got children right now that you're raising, you can put in them the the, the hope and the faith about God. You can begin to teach them uh, God's word. But look at Judges 2.10. After the generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Come on, that would be the worst thing that could be said about America. That we started out as a God-fearing country. God blessed us, which he has. Absolutely no doubt about it. America is a blessed, prosperous nation, blessed to be a blessing. That's always God's intent, right? But as we've gotten settled in our our blessing, now we're doing, as a society, what every other uh, group before us has done, where now they just start to forget about God. I don't need him as much, right? I got everything I need. I don't need God. And so he becomes less and less a priority, less and less preeminent in our lives. We got to stand up against that. Three, Israel's disobedience and the evil kings. In 1 Kings 11, it says this, In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Every time God's people abandoned him, evil kings rise to take advantage of them. And every time that God's people had turned their backs on God and began to reject God, began to ignore him, where do they end up? Enslaved or taken over or conquered. Come on, some of us in our lives, we start wondering why we start feeling like things are enslaving us or or things are holding us down. Let me ask you, where's your obedience level with God? Are you doing what he's called you to do? Are you staying faithful and passionate? In pursuing him or is he becoming an afterthought or a side thought you know I I talked to I don't know who I was talking to a couple weeks ago about you know prayer time and and I said listen it's great there's some people who get very religious or very you know I've got my 30 minutes with God in the morning that I I do faithfully that is great but sometimes those people same people that have their 30 minutes and then they check out and they don't give another thought to God the rest of the day can I tell you that's not the point either right this should be an ongoing i think it was smith wigglesworth said one time that he rarely prayed more than 15 minutes at a time but he also rarely went more than 15 minutes to pray he was communing with god he had this relationship right his ongoing dialogue he never yes he set time aside just like jesus modeled for us but that didn't mean well here's your hour god give me all you got and then i'm going to take the next 23 to myself that's not that's not how it's supposed to be Proverbs 29.2, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in power, they groan. Come on, there's a lot of places all over the world where there are not godly people leading, and those people suffer because of it. There are so many nations that are stuck in poverty, and it's not because they don't have their own resources to come out of that. It's not because other countries haven't tried to bring them resources to better their life and to, and to, to pour into those places, but their leadership holds them back. There's literally, there's corrupt governments all over the place that are holding their own people down. I tell you, they're going to have to answer to God for that. They will have to answer to that. Then number four, the exile and the remnant. Here we see Elijah, evil kings, queens, and prophets ruling. Elijah cries out, I'm the only one left. Have you ever felt like that as a believer? Come on, maybe in your job, you're like, am I the only Christian here? I'm the only one who loves God. Maybe, you know, it's in your own house. You're like, Lord, forgive these other pagans. I'm the only one who loves you, who serves you. And right at the time that we think that, because the devil loves to make us think that we're the only ones, God reminds us just like he did Elijah. Nope. Look what he says. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, every mouth which hath not kissed him. There's always a remnant. Look at your neighbor say, there's always a remnant. I'm telling you right now, the reason that America hasn't completely been turned over to total darkness is because there are so many believers still in this country calling upon the name of the Lord, praying, interceding, asking God to keep us where we need to be. And it starts in the church. If we want to see the nation change, it's not coming from a political person. It's going to come from the Spirit of God coming into the earth, right, and and starting in His church. The Bible says, if my people... If my people will repent, turn from their wicked ways, humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. If we want our land to be healed, it starts with us as a people. We're going to see Nehemiah does this very thing. Next, we, the exile into the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. Number five, God's unfailing love. See, this is what you've got to see about God. He will always, his love is unfailing. Look at his dealings with Daniel. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And look at this in 3.26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. God... His unfailing love will always come through, right? It may look different. I'm going to show you in just a moment. But God's love never fails. Daniel 6.16. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Now, if you remember that story, Nebuchadnezzar believed in the one true God, right? And what happened is they had set up Daniel Because they knew that he would never turn from his God, and so he got caught in this uh, deal where the king could not go back on his word, so therefore he had to send Daniel. But he was praying and believing that God would preserve Daniel's life, and he did. He preserved his life. God delivers his people and gives favor when they refuse to bow. Here's three ways that God delivers you, and this is important. Number one, from the fire. God may deliver you from it. In the fire, God may deliver you in it or through the fire. Others watch you burn. Now, you might say, man, that's, that's tough. We got to understand, God's way of showing off in our life and, and getting glory from our lives is going to look different in everybody's life. There are some people that God will rescue you from a situation, right, where you totally escape and he gets glory for that. Then there's some that you go into the situation and you have to endure a little bit and trust God. But he brings you through it and he's there with you just like he was with Hananiah, Meshach, and Ezariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then there's some that the greatest glory in their life comes from them going to heaven and standing firm in their faith, even when they face death. And I don't know about you, but my Bible says that there's no greater love than this, than someone who would lay down his life for another. Did Jesus not do that for us? I'm going to ask you this morning, are you ready to lay down your life for God? If it came to that. For most of us, because of where we live in the country and, and we're blessed to be here and because of the nation we live in, that's not a, a real threat we walk outside of here wondering about. But can I tell you, you need to be what, what a great youth pastor used to tell me. You need to have a predecision decision already made. You need to know, should it ever come to that, God, I'm, I'm rolling with you. And if they threaten my life, here I come, God. It's a sobering thing to think about. This ain't just about coming to church on Sundays. It's about when it comes to it, how deep is your faith in God? How real is your relationship with God? I've said this before. The thing I care about most as your pastor is that you know God, that you truly know God. Yeah, I hope to see your beautiful faces every Sunday, but if I see your face but you still don't have a real relationship with God outside of this place and outside of this moment, that's not enough. It's not enough. Here's another thing about the remnant, a return to God's word. The book of Ezra begins with a decree from King Cyrus of Persia, allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Look at Ezra 1, 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you wherever this Jewish remnant is found. Let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem." The book of Ezra, Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, and he laid the foundation for the temple. He was given sanction to rebuild the temple and return the sacred temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar II had preserved for the conquest of Babylon. And Then Ezra follows to reinstitute institute temple worship. And here we get to Nehemiah, the burden to rebuild. This is number seven. Nehemiah returns to build, rebuild the walls. Here in verse one, one through 11, or chapter one, one through 11. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 28th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, For days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember, verse 8, what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. See, Nehemiah had a passion for God. And when he heard that things were not going well, he didn't just stay at home in his position, living his great life, and go, oh, man, that sucks for them. He didn't go, oh, I hope they figure that out. He didn't even say, Lord, would you just send somebody over there? No. He immediately, his response was, God, I want to do something about this. I want to step in. Will you use me? Will you grant me favor? And then he goes and asks for favor so that he also may go and help because he knows he can help see this temple get rebuilt. Do you have that kind of passion for God where you're not waiting for someone to come to you and say, hey, we've got this need or, or we need this done? Are you the kind of person that says that you're looking So you're like, God, what else can I do? How else can I serve? How else can I make a difference for you? That's what Nehemiah was like. I want to show you this slide to give you a visual of what this span of time looks like. Israel's timeline here, starting in 1040 B.C., you see there's a united kingdom, right, under Saul and David and Solomon. And then the kingdom gets divided into, instead of 12 united, there was two and then 10. And then you'll see we have the exile, 70 years in exile. Before God brings people back together here with Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the revived people. 1,600 years we're covering. Let me give you five characteristics of the remnant as we wind down. Number one, prayer and thankfulness. This is a mark of God's people. Remember Daniel in 6.10 said, But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Now, the order had just been given that if you continue to worship any other God and you don't bow down, right, you're going to be killed. You're going to be dealt with. And so Daniel hears this, and what does he do? Oh, he just goes back home and kneels down as usual. Why? Because he's not bowing to anyone else but the Lord God. And he didn't even close his windows. I love that little detail in there. He's like, you know what? Let them see me. Let them see me continuing to do and be faithful to my God. Continuing to pray. I'm not changing one step. You know, I I said this in the first service. The only time that God gives us the, the right to rebel against the government is when the government is calling you to rebel against God. At that point, there's a higher authority than the President of the United States. That's why we're so passionate about, you know, coming and gathering and worship. We're going to continue to worship God. If someone tries to tell you, it's, we're outlawing the worship of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm not outlawing it in my own life. The question is, would you still continue as usual? Would you still show up to church? Would you still pray with your windows open? Not worried about if somebody sees you and turns you in. Come on, in other nations, they deal with that but they're bold. Number two, a radical obedience to God. Think of Noah in Genesis 6. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Nobody had built a a boat before this, at least not to this magnitude, right? Maybe there were some people fishing and all that, but no one had built an ark. And God tells Noah to build an ark. Sometimes God will call you you and ask you and call you to build the very thing that he's going to use to preserve your life. And sometimes he'll ask you to do it in the middle of the woods and you're like, there's no water around here. Oh, don't worry. The water's coming. Remember Charlton Heston, 40 days and 40 nights. It rained. But are you going to be radically obedient to God and what he calls you to do? Or are you only rolling with him when it's convenient and it doesn't really cost you any comfort? This is what it really means to be the remnant. Number three, courage in the face of death. Look at Esther's story, Esther 4.16. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Are you ready to serve God if it costs you your life? We've got to really think about this. And if so... What are we doing about it? How are we living? Is our commitment to God that fierce? That we'd be willing to go in the face of death and have courage. Number four, passion for God's glory. Look at Elijah. First Kings 18, one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. You go and read this story. I love this story. You've got this showdown, right? All the prophets of Baal and, and their false gods. And then you've got, you've got Elijah saying, I'm not even worried about your stuff. As a matter of fact, he starts mocking them when they're calling upon their God. Maybe he's too busy or maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's gone. Or I told everybody in the first service, I think that's a little bit of biblical context. You're allowed to be sarcastic a little bit if you're doing it on, on God's behalf. Towards the enemy. But how well do you know that your God will come through for you? How well? Have passion for his glory. And then lastly, the countercultural righteousness. Look at Joseph's life. Genesis 39, 9. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. See, we did a whole series on Joseph and how... He continued to do what he knew was right and what God had called him to do, right? Joseph wasn't going to just say, okay, now that I'm here, I, got, I could probably get away with this. I could probably get away with that. I've got some favor. I could do this. No one else would even know. No, God knows. God always knows, and he sees. And if we're going to have integrity, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we're going to live our life, whether we could get away with it or not. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to be countercultural. Let me pray for you. It's going to be a great series. It's going to be exciting to see the plans and what God has next for this location, for all of our locations, as we just going to continue to believe God to see more lives transformed just like Tyler and Jessica's was and has been. But it all starts with making a commitment to Jesus Christ. In every service at the end, we want to give you an opportunity to make that commitment. If you're here and this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus, I want you to know that he died for you, that he has a plan for you, that he made you, and he made you with purpose, on purpose, and he loves you, and if you'll surrender your life to him, it'll be the greatest decision you ever make. And I can't promise you that your life will just go swimmingly the rest of the way. You'll have trials, you'll have suffering, you'll have stuff you'll have to deal with, but I can tell you there's no fulfillment in all of life like knowing God. Everything else is fleeting. It'll pass away. And so I want to give you an opportunity. If you want to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I'm not going to ask you to bow your head or close your eyes. I think if you're going to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, you ought to do it in boldness. And so if you're bold enough to get right with God today, then in a moment I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. We want to pray for you. We want to support you. We want to welcome you into the spiritual family that God has for you. And I promise you angels will be rejoicing in heaven. That's what the Word tells us. But we've got to be bold about our faith. We've got to be bold about it. And, and for those of you that have made that commitment, but honestly you've been wavering, and, and God really has not been the preeminent place and person in your life, come on, recommit your life. Go all in again for him today. And walk out of this place knowing, knowing that you're right with God no matter what happens. So if that's you, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, or you want to recommit, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three thank you anybody else jesus said if you don't acknowledge me in front of in front of man then i won't acknowledge you in front of my father so it might be a little awkward the first few weeks when we ask people to do it with everybody looking around guess what i did it with everybody looking around and that's why at 43 i'm still serving god i didn't sneak into heaven I recognized my need for a Savior, and I came down here, and I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm I'm good with that. If there's one person, I'm good with it. Let me pray for you. If that's you, if you raise your hand, just say this from your heart to God. And all of us, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. We're going to say this prayer with you. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin. To take my place on that cross. That my sins would be forgiven. That in a moment I would be washed white as snow. And I could be in relationship with you. I know you have plans for me. I know you have purpose for me. And I ask you to show, show me what those are. And I ask you right here, right now, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, and to be my King. And I will follow you. For the rest of my days, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. God bless y'all.